I'm Danielle Houston, and this is the Monday meetup on March 30th. Um, I'm with Propel Insurance, and our online gathering here is really organized to do three things for you. We're going to give you a highlight of what's happened in the last week, offer a look ahead at what is maybe going to come, what we think is going to come, and um, and then provide a forum that you can ask questions and hear what your HR peers are saying and thinking. Going forward on these Monday meetups, we'll likely rotate experts. It's all just going to kind of depend on what happens and unfolds since everything is moving so quickly. I want to be sure that I don't plan so far ahead that we have guests or topics that maybe aren't relevant for that moment of what's happening. So I will say if you don't feel comfortable with maybe the basics of the Family First Act or you haven't listened to that episode and have questions about those basics, I would encourage you to listen to the meetup from last week where we kind of lay the groundwork for that. This one will build on that initial episode. Uh, my guest today is Stephen Fawcett. He's an attorney with Gordon Thomas Honeywell based out of Tacoma. Um, prior to Gordon Thomas Honeywell, he was an HR professional for four years. So he understands the kinds of questions that you have, and um, his practice now focuses on advising and consulting employers in labor and employment matters, as well as some litigation defense for discrimination, wage, and our and other claims. So uh, Gordon, Thomas, Gordon Thomas Honeywell, sorry, that's just that mouthful for me sometimes. Um, they are a friend of Propel. They are headquartered in Tacoma, and we lean on them frequently for our outside counsel. So say hello, Stephen. Hello, everyone, and thank you for having me. All right, also a new expert in Zoom. That's right, yeah. I don't know if yeah. I call myself an expert. I think I'm still newbies back as well. <laughs> well, we figured out how to log in and make the camera work. So I think we're doing okay. Um, so let's go through this and really start with um, a highlight reel, as I would call it. And I'm going to take a step back and say, okay, let's start on the 18th. The president signed the Families First Act. That was the 18th of March. On the 20th, the Department of Labor, the IRS, and the Treasury issued a joint news release on employer paid leave requirements. It focused mostly on clarifying tax credits provided under the law and made some indication that the Department of Labor intended to focus on compliance assistance and not enforcement, at least at first. And I think I read in that release that at least at first is the first 30 days. So we've got a little bit of a grace period while we move through that. Not really a lot to add to that, but um, for any of these, if you're looking for those guidance or issue statements, we can compile all of those into one place for you to tap in to that, which might be helpful. Um, on the 24th, the Department of Labor published some guidance explaining paid sick leave and expanded family medical leave benefit. This is something I think a lot of folks are, um, are really interested in there. So um, Stephen, can you talk to us a little bit about that published guidance? Yeah, absolutely. It, so it's actually three separate you know, published guidance. There's one that's specifically for employers, 
one that's for uh, more employee friendly, although they're very similar actually. And then there's a Q&A guidance that's also there. Um, I, I personally found, you know, if, if you are familiar with kind of the basics of the family's first coronavirus, which moving forward, I'm going to call the FFCRA, so I don't have to say all those words every single time. Okay. Um, so if you're familiar with the basics of that, I don't know that there's a ton in that guide, in at least in the employer and employee guidance that's new. It was it was very very consistent with a lot of the summaries that I'd seen, uh, kind of online or that I put together myself, or uh, just you know there wasn't a ton of new uh, substance to that, with one exception, which is that. Um, I think most people, myself included, having read the actual text of the statute, understood that the effective date was going to be April 2nd. Um, and DOL in this guidance says the effective date is April, effective date is April 1st. And I'm still I'm still confused as to how exactly how exactly they got that number. Uh, I think the only way you get to April 1st from uh, March 18th is if you count both the day of enactment and April 1st. But that, it doesn't matter. The point is that that's what DOL says. So I think a lot of people, uh, you know, found out they have one day less to prepare when they issued that guidance. Yeah, and uh, Wednesday is April first, so yes. the time is upon us already. Yeah. Um, so also on the twenty fourth, and this probably includes a little bit of what we've already talked about. But can you talk about the enforcement bulletin that the DOL released also on the twenty fourth? Yeah, so uh, they had kind of mentioned that DOL had mentioned that they were going to uh, take a, a non-enforcement position for the first 30 days in their previous press release. But on the 24th, they issued a field assistance bulletin that essentially makes it official. You know, this, this is their guidance to their enforcement um, authorities. Um, and what they say is that for the first 30 days, uh, if an employer is making a reasonable and good faith attempt to comply with the law, that there won't be any penalties associated with, uh, you know, if it turns out that there's, they, they did it wrong. Um, and the guidance actually clarifies what is meant by reasonable and good faith. Uh, and what it means is that if, if you down the road, it turns out you got something wrong, um, they're going to ha have you uh, make the employees whole. So pay the sick leave wages that you would have had to pay. Um, and write a, a, a written commitment that you will comply with the law in the future. Um, and the critical thing is what makes it in good faith or reasonable is that it was not a uh, willful violation. Now that willful is a, a term of art kind of in wage and hour law. So I, I find a lot of times uh, when I work with employers in litigation, when the question of willfulness comes up, they always say, well, we didn't know it wasn't intentional. I didn't intend to short my employee, employees wages in this way or that way. Uh, and willful under the law doesn't have to do with intentionality when it comes to this, when it comes to wage and hour things. Uh, basically has to do with, is there a um, ambiguity in the law on this issue? So you're expected to know, to know what the law clearly is. And if you don't comply with what the law clearly says, that is a willful violation. Um, so what this means is if you are making a good faith effort to comply with the law and you know anything that's kind of in the summaries you're seeing online or previous episode that was done, you know anything that's brought up there, you need to comply with, with those. If it has to do with something where there isn't guidance on it or, um, you know, it's just it is an ambiguity in the law on that issue and you, you know, try your best to, you know, we think this is what the law says, then they're, then they're going to say you're acting in good faith. Uh, we're not going to hold you to it, at least not for those first uh, 30 days, which, by the way, is uh, 30 days from enactment of the statute, not 30 days from when they issued 
uh, guidance, which means April 17th. So okay. it's, not, yeah, Important it's, it's, it's really more like a little over two weeks of kind of leeway from when you actually have to start complying uh, that you that you get this non-enforcement kind of grace period. Yeah. So we need to be ramping up quickly and asking those questions to make sure we're clarifying anything that could be a gap. And there will be some gaps, which we can, you know, we're going to talk about some of those things too. Um, okay, on the 25th, the Department of Labor did invite stakeholders to a national online dialogue about paid family and medical sick leave, which I wanted to at least put that out there as a note if other people didn't see it and you want an opportunity to speak to how this impacts HR, ways that it could and should be administered. And, the, and I think we all have experienced that often the, the way some of this legislation lays out, it doesn't really apply very practically when you actually have to go and do that with your employees. So I would encourage everyone to take the opportunity to have your voice heard. Stephen, anything else? No, nothing to that? No. Okay. All right. On the 26th, yeah, these guys have been busy, right? On the 26th, uh, the Department of Labor, they issued that workplace poster and guidance for notice requirements. Um, and updated some prior guidance that they issued just two days before. So if you don't have the poster, we need to get the poster. Uh, what else, Stephen? Um, so I guess as far as the poster is concerned, you do, you do need to have it up by April 1 uh, in a conspicuously posted area. Um, I think the main two things I think are interesting, at least to me, about uh, the guidance that they issued for that is uh, you don't need to provide the notice to recently laid off employees. Uh, which the DOL has since clarified uh, kind of what your obligations are for employees who are who have been laid off. But when that was released, that was actually a big, big kind of help for a lot of us who are not totally sure how, in particular, like a temporary layoff was going to apply to the FFCRA. Uh, and I can, I'll talk about that in a, in a minute when I talk about some of the updated guidance. But uh, when that, that guidance was released, that was kind of a tip off of, okay, uh, those employees are not going to get those leave. Uh, benefits. Um, and the other kind of, I think that's going to apply to a lot of people is if you have a lot of employees, if, if your employer has a lot of employees who are teleworking, so there isn't a place to put the poster where everybody's going to be able to see it, you can comply with the requirements by emailing or even posting it on a company like Shares uh, Point or you know, some sort of internal website everybody can see. Um, and that will comply with the law, at least for those employees. Okay, that, that was actually one of my questions. So thank you for jumping in with that one. All right, on the 27th, uh, the president signed the CARES Act and that all happened pretty quickly last week. It's aimed to provide relief for individuals and businesses. So we'll talk about that in a little bit more detail, I think, in, when we look ahead. So we won't pause too long yeah. on that one. Um, on the 28th, and the 29th, the Department of Labor updated guidance again from the 24th. So we can see how this is a constant sort of work in motion. Um, what was that guidance updated um, on the so 28th and 29th? The, the guidance update on the 28th and the 29th, as well as the one you mentioned a minute ago, I think on the 26th, uh, those have yes. all been adding to that Q&A document that, the, that I mentioned earlier. So actually, I'm going to go over some of the, I think, the ones that are going to be of most interest to uh, the attendees of this 
Uh, but I actually recommend most people just read it. It's, it is long. It's, I think it's almost um, 60 questions and answers. Uh, but it covers a lot of a, a lot of the questions I'm getting um, now that they, you know, some of the stuff they just did over the weekend. But now that I have a chance to review it, it's good to um, it, it really does clarify a lot of uh, issues that I think are have been kind of ambiguous for a lot of people. So I think it, it would do you, it would do you a favor to uh, to read over that Q and A document. Uh, if, if yeah. Um, so okay. As far as what's actually in it, that again I think is going to be most uh, interesting. Um, I mentioned earlier, there's some clarification on how the FFCRA and the benefits that, you know, the sick leave and paid FMLA benefits that you would get under that law apply when an employee has been put on temporary layoff, furlough, uh, whatever you want to call it. And one of the big questions that I was getting is if you lay off an employee before April 1 or even after April 1, uh, do I have to provide them these benefits moving forward? Uh, and there is some ambiguity there because under, you know, for example, under uh, unemployment law in Washington State, you can put an employee on standby, which the law treats as a temporary layoff, but by definition, it means that the employee has a connection with that employer and is anticipated to return at some date in the short-term future. So it's a little weird, right? You can even continue benefits for that employee while they're on standby. So you can see, well, boy, it kind of seems like they're still an employee, but also kind of seems like they're not. Um, and so what this guidance clarifies is they are not entitled to the, the paid sick leave and paid FMLA benefits under the FFCRA once they've been laid off or furloughed or, or whatever it is. Um, okay, and that question has come up a lot, so thank you for that. Um, and, and, and that is going to apply even after April 1, uh, because the law also provides, this isn't in the guidance, but the law also says that the law doesn't create any requirement to pay out sick leave, any sick leave that you have under the law after somebody's been terminated. So if somebody's laid off, that you you wouldn't have to continue providing them uh, you know, benefit, um, and you, there's no you pay that out or anything like that. Like sometimes employers do for PTO policies or something like that. Um, okay. Yeah. Uh, the next thing that I think is particularly interesting it talks about benefits, uh, how uh, benefits are going to work while somebody's on leave and when somebody's um, off leave and all that. Um, most I think relevantly, if somebody if somebody's on paid FMLA, uh, they already have an existing right to continue their benefits as though they um, same terms in, that they would have been under if they were continuing employment. So if I go on FMLA, uh, I can continue my health care and I would pay my premiums and my employer is going to pay, uh, you know, the employer portion still. And this is no different for the just because it's a new paid FMLA obligation. Um, it's because, and in fact, it actually just modifies the existing FMLA. So it kind of continues that requirement. But the, um, the guidance also makes clear that under the paid sick leave, you're also you know, obligated to continue benefits while an employee is on sick leave, which I think actually is, was, is pretty straightforward because they're still your employee. You know, you would, if somebody's on Washington sick leave or something, you wouldn't uh, kick them off benefits for, you know, say that that's a termination or anything. Uh, what I think maybe is a little more interesting is that it permits, it doesn't require, but it permits employers to continue coverage for employees who don't return to work after they've gone on this leave or something like that. Um, so that gets back to my earlier point of, you know, oftentimes uh, when employer employees are put on standby, a lot of uh, benefits plans are allowing employers to continue coverage, again, under the same terms, so the employee would still have to pay uh, their portion of the premiums, but they'll allow the employees to be on 
uh, on benefits while they're on standby. Uh, and so this, I think, just continues to, you know, kind of verifies that that is a, a correct and uh, there's nothing unlawful about that. Um, employers aren't obligated to do so. Um, and some, if a benefits plan administrator isn't allowing it, that's, you know, then you can't offer it. Um, but if that's the case, either if the employer chooses not to, or if it's not allowed under the uh, plan, then this, you know, it would be considered a layoff. So you'd have to provide the employee, you know, the employee would likely qualify for COBRA. Uh, and so you'd have to kind of treat that like you would a normal layoff or a normal termination in that way. Okay. Well, most carriers, at least here in Washington and in Oregon, if we're talking about fully insured, they are allowing employers to put them into a leave of absence if they're on a standby or a furlough. And depending on your carrier and the contract, that leave of absence could be anywhere from 30 to 90 days. And you can put that person into that leave of absence, not push them into COBRA, which um, is a nice is a nice way to, to handle that, especially hoping that people will be back to work soon. If you are self-funded, it would be important to know that we have to get um, some special exceptions from stop-loss carriers to allow that, but we have seen them be incredibly flexible. There's certainly an attitude and a spirit of everyone trying to work together to make as many things as we can, as painless as we can. So if you need some help with that, um, definitely let me know. I know I've talked to, to many of you already about those pieces. Um, anything yeah, anything yes, else? Yeah, I definitely have more. <laughs> I think that oh, be... I know, there's, there's always more. Um, so I think, and, and also to, to that point, Danielle, I think uh, I've, I've heard actually that some uh, plan, plans are allowing up to 120 days. They're kind of extending out that time. So just to, I, I don't know if you've seen that as well, but I, I, that's what I've heard with some of, some of our clients with their interactions with uh, their, their plan administrators. Yeah, I haven't seen that yet, but I wouldn't be surprised if this extends to see carriers continue to make some changes or the insurance commissioner step in the mandate and order people to do things that are outside of our usual. Yeah. Um, okay. So uh, moving on, I think one of the other yeah. kind of interesting things, uh, the, the guidance allows for supplementing FFCRA benefits uh, either through an employer, uh, either through like a, a PTO or sick leave policy, or the employer can just choose to do so. Um, and so only that, mostly that's going to come up for uh, paid FMLA or for sick leave, you know, caring for a, a family member or a child whose uh, child care is closed. Because in all those cir circumstances, you're entitled to only two thirds of your pay up to $200 a day. Um, and so in that situation, you could have, you could allow the employee to, you, to, you know, take sick leave to fill up the remaining one third of their, their pay to make them get 100% of their pay for that pay that day uh, or for that pay period. Uh, all of that having been said, there's no, you know, there's tax credits uh, that you'll get for wages that you're paying out under this law. The tax credit is not gonna apply to any supplemental pay you provide. Uh, it's only what is required but for, by employers to pay employees under that law. Uh, so you can allow employees to use their sick leave, for example, but you're not gonna get any sort of reimbursement for that gap filler. Um, I know I've heard, I got a lot of questions about documentation, what kind of documentation is gonna be required. Um, and there is some guidance on that, which is very helpful. Um, 
which kind of gets to that earlier point of, you know, the law makes clear that you only qualify for the tax credit if it's required by the law for you to provide that leave. Um, and so I do think that there will be some requirements to show that, you know, if somebody took sick leave or paid FMLA or whatever, that they did it for a reason that qualifies under the law. And so uh, having documentation of that is going to be important. Um, as far as like a school closure or childcare closure, it does seem like from the guidance, it does seem like they're pretty flexible. You know, they indicate if you get a notice, if you have a notice in the news that schools are closed, that'll suffice, you know, if your kid is going to that school or if a child care has posted on their website that they are closed because of coronavirus or something like that, uh, that's going to qualify. Um, and I also know, as it also says as far as, you know, if you're under a quarantine or isolation, either by a government order or by uh, a healthcare provider advising you to do so, that you'll want to be able to show whatever that notice is, whatever you got as far as the government order, or, uh, you know, I think something as simple as an email from a healthcare provider will probably suffice. Uh, the guidance actually doesn't talk about what I think is probably the trickiest one of the paid sick leave options, which is if you have symptoms and are seeking a diagnosis. Because interestingly enough, being sick with coronavirus on its own is not a qualifying use of uh, sick leave under the FFCRA. I mean, if you're quarantined, it's hard to imagine being sick and not being quarantined. But theoretically, if you're not under a quarantine, if you just think you have coronavirus, that's not going to get sick leave, right? Um, well, the guidance doesn't have anything about how to uh, document if you are have symptoms and seeking a diagnosis, which isn't defined. And so I think this is one of those ambiguities where, you know, is it a seeking a diagnosis if I'm trying to get a, a test and I'm one of the population that doesn't, you know, they're not really testing right now because they don't, they don't have tests. Um, right. And so is it going to be enough to show that you've been in communication with the doctor? and they've said that they've turned you down. I don't know. Um, but I think just for safe measure, I would gather absolutely everything related to you seeking that diagnosis because that's going to be, I think that's that may be one that is harder to show. And so you'll just have to gather everything that you can. And that's also going to complicate for employers their confidentiality requirements because uh, that now you're just gathering more and more information that is potentially, you know, is confidential that you have uh, all sorts of legal obligations to protect. So you'll want to be kind of mindful how you go about that process. Um, and then I think last for now, because I don't want to, I mean, I could go on, but I do recommend reading it. Um, there is a little bit of guidance on uh, the small business waiver. So as a little background under the FFCRA, it applies to all employers who have fewer than 500 employees, um, but it allows for a, potentially a waiver for small businesses with fewer than 50 employees when compliance to the requirements of the law would jeopardize the vi their viability is an ongoing concern, is the phrase they use. Um, and now that's not defined in the law. And so a lot of questions I've gotten, especially from, you know, from smaller businesses is, uh, how do I show that it's gonna jeopardize the viability, right? And especially since it has, it can't just be that the viability of your business is impacted by coronavirus in general or loss of profits in general, it has to be you complying with the requirements of the law. Um, you know, providing sick leave and providing paid FMLA. So they have provided three kind of circumstances that are going to qualify most likely. Uh, and they include, I'm going to read these if that's okay. Um, Thank you. Yeah. Uh, if the cost would result in expenses exceeding available bu business revenue and would cause the business to see cease operating at a minimal capacity. So I, ba basically I think if, if the costs are going to exceed business revenue is the main part of that of, 
if it's just more expensive than you're even bringing in profit. Um, if absences would in, entail a substantial risk of financial health or operational uh, capabilities, and they point out specifically because the employee who's seeking the sick leave, they have some sort of specialized skill or specialized knowledge of the business. So allowing them to take sick leave is going to jeopardize your small business because that might be the only person who knows how, you know, this system is run or who knows how, where things are, um, or know, has any contact with this client or, you know, all sorts of different circumstances. Um, and then if there's not going to be sufficient workers able, willing, and qualified to perform whatever labor or services the employer provides if they're uh, granting the requests for leave. So if you have people requesting leave, then it's going to mean I can't continue operating because basically everyone who's doing this work is going to be gone. That would be another circumstance. So unfortunately, it doesn't provide a lot of guidance as to how you would go about getting the waiver. There's nothing. It doesn't say where to. There isn't a form to fill out yet. Anticipate that in the future there isn't a website to go to or a call line, but um, at least it has some guidance on kind of the factors you can be looking at if this would apply to you if you have fewer than 50 employees, because uh, uh, and and start collecting documentation uh, if that's something that you um, are going to kind of go after because uh, I wouldn't anticipate having this full thing full thing operational like being able to apply for this waiver by April one. So I think small businesses are going to have to plan that I'm going to have to comply with this law as of April 1, and then hopefully get a waiver a little a little down the road. But at least at first, I would plan on that you're going to have to comply, that there isn't going to be a way to get a waiver before then. Okay. So I think it's a good time. There's a couple of questions I think we can well work into this. Um, and if you can't answer them right now, then um, just note, guys, I'll I'll be responding back and send you answers to these. Um, if your employees are classified as non-essential under the stay-at-home order and are not working at all, do they qualify for the paid sick leave? So I actually got that question earlier today. My, it, it's, you know, it's a little ambiguous because it, the, it says if you're under a federal, state, or local order to quarantine or isolation, um, you know, I did a, a, a control F search of, of Governor Inslee's order earlier today. It doesn't say the word quarantine or isolate anywhere in the entire order. Um, and I think just conceptually speaking, it's not a quarantine order. It, it limits your ability to leave your house except for, you know, getting groceries or, you know, you can go on a hike theoretically under this. So it's not a quarantine, you know, it is limiting your movement and your ability to leave the house, but I don't know that you can call it quarantine or isolation. Um, and I think, you know, I think this may be one of those ambiguities where if you are wrong, you know, potentially down the road, DOL is going to show some leeway there because it is ambiguous. Um, and I almost feel like it's, it's to your benefit to assume that it is not because, you know, again, there's going to be some leeway there. But on the other hand, if you pay out the sick leave and it doesn't end up being something that is required under the law, you don't get a tax credit for that. So, you know, I think between those two considerations, one, I don't think it's, uh, I don't think just based on the words, what the word quarantine or isolation mean, I don't think this qualifies. But also I think there's a, you know, do the cost benefit of like what is going to be the harm if I do it and what's going to be the harm if I don't. And I think that you stand to be in a better position if you move forward, assuming that it's not covered under this FFCRA. Okay, so let's talk about one of those questions that kind of gets into the, you know, how much harm do we, don't we? 
what about, let's say you have someone who has gone to the doctor and maybe they have some symptoms. Um, can you let people come back to work without the test? So the person is saying that the doctor told them they don't have qualifying symptoms, but what if they really do have the illness? Is the employer at risk if they let someone come back and then actually have the virus and infect their fellow workers? That's a great question. And I think, um, you know, one, one point to bring up that I think is going to speak to this is that the CDC is actually at, at still at this point, if you look at their guidance for employers, they're not actually recommending that you have employees get a you know, bill of health to be able to return to work at this point. Because for the simple fact that it's just, um, you know, our healthcare providers are overloaded as it is already. And if we send every employee who has flu-like symptoms um, to get a, a medical certification to be able to return to work, that's going to further kind of aggravate that um, overloading. Um, I do think that the safest thing to do, and it's legal to do so under the law, is to require them to, um, you know, not come into work. If you can have them work from home. Um, unless, you know, unless they're sick and want to take sick leave or something like that, um, you know, but not have them come back into the office for, let's say, you know, 10 or 14 day period or until they get some sort of, you know, there's a lot of tele, what do you call it, uh, tele telehealth, uh, telehealth yeah. um, options out there now where you can at least review symptoms and see what risks are. Um, as far as like kind of potential exposure to the employer, if you allow an employee to come back, uh, with symptoms. Um, and there's certainly some, I mean, OSHA has requirements to uh, prevent employees from being exposed to like reasonably foreseeable harm, uh, which I think may include, uh, you, know, you know, somebody getting exposed to coronavirus if they come because they're coming into work, um, you know, with symptoms. So you definitely, I mean, there is a potential for liability there. I don't know how aggressive OSHA is going to be about that. You know, th this is, this is kind of an unprecedented situation. It's not really what OSHA does, you know, checking into workplace, um, you know, spread of workplace viruses or anything like that. But I think if you're if you're really not being cautious and, and kind of have an egregious situation where somebody, you know, is really sick and you're you're making them come in, you know, potentially there could be exposure there. But that's another area where it I think it's going to be it's tough to say definitively what will happen. But cer it's certainly not uh, risk-free. Okay. Well, and in this situation, we're talking about people that work in construction that are likely, of course, deemed essential. So they can't necessarily go work from home. Yeah. But what a more what about a more I'll call it a heavy-handed approach? Um, what if an employer has a policy that says, you know what, if you come to work sick with these symptoms, then that's your job. You're terminated. So, and you, you want to know if that would be um, like unlawful? Yeah. Is that is that unlawful? Is that I mean? Yeah. I mean, I, I I I would be very uh, um, weary of a of a policy like that in large part because you know being sick with a flu or even coronavirus, you know, as it, it presents for most people, um, is not a disability. Generally speaking. Um, but I wouldn't do it based on symptoms because you can have someone who has those symptoms, including having complications due to coronavirus, who may actually qualify as having a disability. And so that policy would be uh, in violation of 
you know, the ADA and, and WLAD in that it would be discriminatory against someone who has a disability. So it's such a fine line and, or such a um, kind of nuanced case-by-case -case basis sort of thing uh, that I don't know that I would be comfortable saying if you come in and you have a cough that you're, <laughs> you're fired. Um, having been said, it, there's absolutely nothing, there's nothing in the law that says you couldn't just send that employee home and say you can't come back for X amount of time. Um, you can't come back and, I mean, you can require an employee to get a medical certification before they return. Um, I'm just, I just was pointing out that the CDC kind of is recommending we don't, um, that employers mm -hmm. don't do that, but there's nothing in the law that says you can't do it. And frankly, I, I, I know a lot of employers are, and I absolutely understand why they would have, have you know, more aggressive policy like that. Okay, um, really quickly, when, when does the post, oh no, we've talked about that, the poster needs to get put up by April 1st for folks that work in construction where they have job sites, where should that poster, how, how are they gonna distribute that? So um, first I would encourage, there are, is a Q&A uh, that the, the DOL has put out about uh, work site posters and stuff. The, generally, you're, you're going to have to have a poster at every work site where you have um, basically more than a couple employees working there. You know, if you have one, if you have security that is working at a, a single post, for example, you're not going to have to have a poster there. But I would consider a construction work site most likely you're going to have to have posters up. Um, and so you're going to do it, and you, it, the law just requires that it be conspicuously posted. So if there's an area where people are gathering for lunch, you know, even if it's a stand around area, uh, you can try to do that. Um, I think that that may be a situation you can actually uh, meet requirements by sending potent, uh, notice by mail or, or so I think there's there's options for you for that if there really isn't a place to put it. But I would consult that uh, Q&A because it actually goes through some scenarios like that and discusses kind of what the posting requirements would be. Okay. Um, here's another question. SFCRA applies to employers under 500. We have several operating entities in separate states totaling just over 500 employees. What are the key components to determining if they are a joint employer under FLSA? So the, the FLSA um, does what's called an integrated employer test. Um, and that, that test is available online, but they're gonna look essentially for how much control you have over the employees. If you have kind of a common management, common, if common HR, common payroll that, that uh, is going to apply to all those employees, um, you know, that's going to qualify under the FLSA. Um, yeah, I don't know if there's more. To, to, I, I'm, I'm ha happy to ask, answer more questions related to that, but um, it, is, it is actually kind of uh, fact intensive. So it's going to you know, if you're all using the same employee handbook, if you're all, you know, but even then there's kind of limitations on that. So you're going to want to get more specific legal advice to that situation. Uh, but I okay. can't, generally speaking, it, it all has to do with kind of common management and common control of employees. If you're setting their, uh, their pay rate and, and things, you know, the hours that they're working and all, all that stuff, like those are going to go towards you being a common, you know, a, a joint employer. So this would be a great scenario where someone could reach out to you as an attorney and get an opinion and make it really specific to their situation and go through that exercise with you. Thank you. Dana. Right. <laughs> That's <Yeah. fair. laughs> 
okay, well, I think we're going to run into a lot of those situations over the coming weeks that are just enough outside the box that you'll want to be sure you speak to someone. Um, and here's another really good question, too, and, and I am hearing this, and of course, we're seeing it in certain fields like senior living or other essential places where people have to come to work. And those employees, they're going through a process every morning, they come into work and they're getting their temperature taken. Um, can you speak to, I mean, is that something that all employers could do if they are essential and people are coming in every day? Yeah, so um, the EEOC actually has guidance on this particular issue. And they had, uh, okay. it, they issued it a little, a couple years back related to H1N1 and um, one of those flus that went around. Uh, and so it was, it was called, you know, uh, EEOC guidance related to pandemics, and they've recently updated it related to uh, COVID-19 coronavirus. And it, my, my recollection is that it, it actually specifically says, you know, when you're in a pandemic situation that uh, you can uh, require uh, temperature uh, for somebody who's you know, to be able to come into the workplace. Uh, the thing you have to be careful, careful with with that is that it is generally going to be considered uh, what's called like a medical test or medical certification. Uh, which you can do again in a pandemic situation because it creates what's a pandemic is what's called a direct threat to the workplace, uh, which creates an exception. Well, anyway, we're getting into the weeds on it, but uh, it essentially says if you're in a pandemic, the, the situation's dangerous enough that we can kind of put some of those concerns aside as, as it relates to, um, you know, your ADA, your, your disability rights, you can take somebody's temperature uh, when they come in, but you have to be, careful because that information is uh, a medical, again, a medical test, a medical certification. You have to treat that with as much confidentiality and, and uh, privacy as you would if somebody provides you a note from a doctor, even though it's you doing it. So if you're, keep, if you're recording it or anything like that, you absolutely have to keep that protected. You can't let other people see, you know, the results of those tests as you're taking them. You're going to be kind of keep, make, make sure to keep it confidential. Okay, well, I guess that could be tricky in the sense of if you're doing it as people are coming into work and one person's temperature is high and you say, oh, see you tomorrow or let's try again in 14 days, confidentiality is kind of breached at that point though, right? Yeah, I mean, I would, I would if you're going to do something like that, you, you may want to have people come, like go, do it in a separate room as there is something like that where you're able to let somebody know, hey, you know, your temperature is high, you know, we're, you're not, you're, we don't want you to come back to work until uh, you know, at least three days after you, you're no longer symptomatic, you know, which I think is what the CDC is recommending. Uh, so you, okay. you want to be able to kind of have that conversation discreetly. Okay, good, good to know. All right, so would now be a good time to transition to the look ahead. Um, you know, the CARES Act has been signed, just happened on Friday. There are some specific points that are really going to impact employers and human resources. So, and a lot more to come on that. But can we just kind of go through a few of these things that we know a little bit of right now? Um, so, what can you? I mean, I guess the first thing that popped up when I was looking through the bill, the expansion of unemployment benefit dollars. Um, and the benefits that go through December 31st. Um, anything to maybe share and shed a little extra light on that point right now? So I, I was thinking about this earlier, and it's 
it doesn't isn't going to require employers to do anything. It's it's all kind of through agreement between the state and the federal government. And so I think the state kind of has some options on how they want payment to go through and all this stuff. I think generally it'll probably be through the same mechanisms that employees are currently receiving unemployment, but they have some options there. But I think it's still worthwhile for employers to know because you know these are your employees and this is this is this this is what they're going through. And so this is I think it kind of will help you either with your decision making or just kind of knowing what's happening. Um, so the way that it's structured is it creates an additional $600 per week in benefits above and beyond what is uh, provided under the state under state law. So uh, right now the current in Washington, the maximum unemployment is $790 a week. Um, it's some kind of convoluted formula that's roughly 60% of your salary, but again, tops out at 790. Um, so if, if whatever that amount is, if I'm getting the full 790, I would qualify for an additional $600 above and beyond that. Um, it also gets rid of, uh, generally when you go, file for unemployment, there's gonna be a one week waiting period. And this uh, temporarily through December 31st does away with that one week waiting period. So people would immediately qualify for benefits. Um, and also in unemployment, you generally get up to 26 weeks of benefits. And this adds an additional 13 weeks so employees could qualify for benefits up to 39 weeks, which is quite some time. So it's good. I mean, I, I think it's, it's, it's definitely going to be helpful, you know, to the extent that employees are, you know, do have to make that very difficult decision of laying some or, you know, even all of their workforce off. Um, it is nice to know that they're going to have more benefits faster and longer, you know? Um, and so I think that's overall just going to be, a, it's going to be a good thing for those employees. Okay. There were modifications to the Families First Act already. Yeah. Um, do you want to highlight, you want to highlight sure. those for us quickly? Um, so I think the first one I want to point out is actually fairly technical. Um, the, under the, the original bill, the original law, uh, an employee would qualify for paid sick leave right away. You know, just because they're employed, they get the paid sick leave but would only qualify for the paid FMLA once they'd worked for the, been on payroll for the employer for 30 days. Well, one of the questions I think that was coming up is, let's say I um, let go of an employee, I lay them off because my business is struggling because of this uh, you know, crisis we're facing. And then in a month from now or two months from now, I rehire them. You know, they, weren't, they weren't my employee for two months. Does that mean that that starts that 30 minute, or sorry, 30, minute, 30 uh, day time period or you know, are they, do they get to use their FMLA right away? Because they can use it anytime between now and December 31st, right, through the end of the year. Uh, and so the law clarifies, if somebody has, was let go, laid off um, after March 1st, and then they're rehired, that there's no 30-day waiting period uh, for that employee. So uh, again, fairly technical, a little bit in the weeds, but I think it is, it, it's helpful to know that if I'm let go, and then I get brought back on and then school closures continue to happen, which I, is possible, um, uh, that I can still use my paid FMLA for that uh, and not have to wait 30 days after I'm brought, brought back on board. Um, the other thing that I think is actually is a little more exciting, which is why I saved it for, <laughs> uh, uh, saved it for after that, is they, the law has some, uh, allows for uh, advancing refund of tax credits um, so under the uh, FFCRA, they have, you can get a tax credit and under the original uh, law, you, you would be able to file for the tax credit at, on a quarterly basis. 
And then the IRS indicated in that news that the press release they issued uh, on the 20th that they were, in, I, I believe it was in that, they, were, they anticipated they'd be able to get people checks within two weeks of filing. So that's good. But uh, as somebody pointed out uh, to me, you know, if you're filing on a quarterly basis, so the, you know, the next filing I think is in June, and then it, the check takes two weeks to get to you. We're talking about mid-June before you get that check. Um, but if your business is so bad off that you're letting people off and letting people go right now, you know, floating uh, people's sick leave through uh, the month of June or middle of June is, I mean, that's just not doable. It's not feasible. And so what this allows is for uh, essentially, if you are anticipating that you have to pay out sick leave or paid FMLA during a quarter, you can apply to get the refund check in advance um, and just sent to you from, and I don't, now unfortunately, the, the, the actual provisions in the CARES Act, it, it's like a paragraph total. It's, it, there's not a ton of detail about what this looks like, how you apply for it, um, anything like that. Uh, it, it more or less just says we're allowing this to happen and the Secretary of Treasury has the authority to make rules and forms on how to make that happen. So it's gonna be one of those things where it's kind of exciting to hear, um, but also, you know, we don't really know very much about it. And so we'll have to, we'll just be keeping an eye on that, uh, of what exactly that entails. Okay, so there's one next piece too, and it's specific to payroll taxes. And this kind of goes together with a topic that we think, you and I think, that this is likely a separate conversation. And I would love to throw it out to the people who joined us today. Um, would you find it useful to have a, a separate meetup like this um, with one of Stephen's colleagues to hear more about how these payroll taxes um, will work and some of the other like the application for um, some of these small business loans that are being spelled out here. Um, so if you want to maybe chat privately and, and answer that, um, is there anything at a high level that you could speak yeah. to on the payroll taxes? Yeah, I was going to offer that because I, I, I can kind yeah. of broad stroke. So uh, there's, there's two kind of provisions that I think are most relevant and both of them apply just to social security taxes. So I think we, uh, when we were talking about it, we were using the word payroll taxes, which includes Social Security, but it's not going to include Medicare and it's not going to include uh, 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 federal income uh, federal income taxes or anything like that. So just Social Security, but um, they're going to allow a, a refundable tax credit up to 50% of the qualified wages for each employee on a quarterly basis uh, for their first $10,000 that you pay out in wages. So you have an employee, they work, they, if they, in that quarter, they get $10,000 in that quarter, you'll get a tax credit for 50% of that. So $5,000 per employee who, uh, you know, if for their qualified wages, there's really specific requirements for what counts as qualified wages, um, depending on how large of an employer you are. If you have a fewer, 100 or fewer employees, then it's going to be all wages that you're paying or count as qualified wages, including um, wages for uh, cost of health benefits, uh, the costs of providing those employee health benefits. If you have more than 100 employees, then it's only going to apply if the if you're paying out employee wages, but they're um, un if you're unable to provide services due to the pandemic. So basically, if you're keeping employees on payroll but unable to uh, have them working full time, then it will apply. Um, and it's only going to apply to employee employers who have. Uh, 
a 50% or more reduction in their gross receipts per quarter from the previous quarter or the, the quarter, that quarter of last year. So if you have, you know, if you're making uh, 40, you know, if you're making 60% less this quarter than you were in quarter two of last year, you know, the same time last year, uh, I guess we're in quarter one, <laughs> um, then, uh, then, then you would qualify for this uh, tax credit. If you're making more than that, if you're, if you're, you, you've taken a hit, but it's only say a 20% hit from last year, then you're not going to qualify for that. Um, unless your whole business has been shut down by a government order, which I think is going to apply to most like non-essential uh, work sites. And then um, the other one is there's a, a delay in payment for payroll taxes for uh, 2020. Um, and this again is going to apply to social security taxes. Uh, so again, not Medicare, uh, other federal employment taxes, but it allows you to take 50% uh, of the social security taxes you're going to pay this year, uh, and you can pay them on December 31st, 2021. And then the remaining 50% of that you can pay on December 31st of 2022. So it's just letting you kind of push that off on uh, two years. Uh, and importantly, it doesn't, it doesn't apply to businesses who get an SBA loan through the CARES Act and have that loan forgiven under the CARES Act, um, which again, that's, that's getting into the territory that uh, I'm not gonna be able to <laughs> speak that, that well, that competently to, but uh, I, that's something that you'll wanna be aware of, of uh, if you're taking advantage of those, that loan forgiveness uh, provisions of the CARES Act, you know, that may disqualify you, will disqualify you from uh, the kind of uh, for, forbearing of uh, taxes for this year. Okay, um, and and it looks like I mean just in, in the other conversations that I've had and a couple of the folks that have chimed in here, learning more about those small business loans will be really helpful for people. So more to come on that one. A few other things that were in the bill that I thought you know apply to HR and and business owners at least in this space that we're talking about that we can't get into a ton today either, but the use of retirement funds, there's a waiver of the 10% early withdrawal penalty for up to $100,000 for people who need to take it based on um, COVID-related um, things. Or you can't work because your kid's school's closed, or if the business you own closes, but it has this specific kind of COVID-19-related reasons. Okay. Um, and then all testing and potential vaccines for COVID-19 would be covered at no cost to patients. So that was an, an addition in um, the CARES Act. There were more exemptions for telehealth. So definitely much more of an emphasis on making that more widely available at no cost to the patient wherever that's possible. And many of you have probably noticed from your health insurance carrier, if you didn't already have telehealth, they are now making it available or they are adding additional services like 98.6 or some of those other things to really broaden the availability. There's also the inclusion of over-the-counter meds and they are certain ones. Obviously, this one is really helpful when it comes to if you have a flexible spending account or if you have the health savings account, you would be able to use those tax-free funds to pay for those over-the-counter meds without having a prescription from your physician. So I'm sure the IRS will release, you know, whatever guidance they will need to and uh, expand that 
eligibility list, but that will be helpful for HSA folks. Just like on the telehealth piece, we have seen a push there too for telehealth services to be available for people without paying a copay or a cost share if they're enrolled on an HSA plan too, which is a nice helper for those. Um, so we are at about seven minutes and I want to just be mindful of everyone's time because I know there's a lot going on. I think we're going to be able to get to most of the questions that have popped up here. Um, is there anything else, Stephen, that you want to add or that maybe we forgot to include here on our highlight reel or our look ahead? I didn't think so until you put it like that. Now that you got me <laughs> wondering. No, sure. I, I don't think so. I, 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 not anything that I don't think will be covered in some of the questions that we can cover. Okay. And I mean, I think the thing that we are all, if we're not already getting used to it, boy, we better. There is going to be a lot of change and much more to come in the days ahead. It's just not possible to probably capture it all today. And so for that purpose, tackling these on a weekly basis and maybe supplementing with some other things so that we don't have to just, I mean, I'm getting hundreds of emails a day and I know you guys are too. And I feel like this, this kind of a venue helps us to collectively understand and, and ask questions and, and much, much easier than some of the emails I'm seeing. But um, so one other question that came up here. Small business owners are asking if they qualify for the unemployment benefits because they don't normally unless the business ceases to exist. Stephen, what do you think about that? Um, well, I'm not sure if they're talking about uh, unemployment, just uh, state unemployment, or if they're talking about the unemployment additions under the federal law. Um, I actually, I, that is something that I'd, I'd want to kind of come back to. So if I can, I, okay. I, I I don't want to try to answer that off the top of my head. That's absolutely fine. And I know who asked the question, so I will circle well, back. I want to get an answer. Yeah, and I'll, I'll include that for everyone because I do think having some of these FAQs is, is helpful. All right, um, I'm looking at the questions here. I don't see anything new that popped up or maybe that I missed. Um, I had a list of some other questions um, that had come in actually prior to this. Um, okay, so let's start with um, if, if an employee uses emergency sick leave or expanded FMLA intermittently, they would receive two-thirds of their normal pay uh, for the hours they're unable to work. Um, what if, let's see, for example, employee works five hours, applies the remaining three hours to emergency sick leave. In this case, they would receive five hours of normal pay and three hours of two-third. Um, we can see how this works if it's a non-exempt employee, but how would this apply or does it apply to an exempt employee? That's a, so that's a good question. It's almost kind of two questions, I think. Yeah. Um, one is, and in, in, in the Q&A that DOL put out there, there is some uh, guidance on intermittent leave. There's actually very limited circumstances that you can use intermittent leave under these. Uh, so for example, you couldn't use intermittent leave because you're subject to a quarantine. Because you're, you're subject to a quarantine or you're not. If you can work from home, uh, then there's potentially like intermittent leave that you can use. Um, you know, it, 
but and that's something that you can work out with your employer. The employer doesn't have to isn't required to allow the employee to work to, be, to use intermittent leave from home. But the guidance says that that you know that is an option. The the most likely one the the guidance says the most likely situation that you can use intermittent leave is going to be uh, to care for a child because you you can't work to, because your kid's school or childcare is closed, uh, which is kind of my current situation. So I have. Uh, I'm not using any leave, but I, you know, I have a kid at home and I'm working throughout the day. And then maybe there's a couple hours during the day where I have to tap out and not be working because I'm, uh, you know, my, my kid is needs whatever, you know, thing that, whatever kids need. <laughs> uh, and so you do that and then you go back to working. So then that, that can be an option. And that is my understanding from the guidance, more or less kind of the main option that, that that's when you can use intermittent leave. Um, so as to kind of the other question of how that applies to exempt employees, um, you are, you know, you, you know that under uh, the state and federal law, you can't make deductions from a salary exempt employee of less than a full day, um, unless it's pursuant to a sick leave policy that the company has. Uh, and so my, I believe that this is going to kind of fit under that same, that same request. So I would treat this like you would treat sick leave um, uh, or, or, you know, the use of FMLA where somebody's taking intermittent leave as a salaried employee. I would, I would treat that the same, um, under this new law as you would just kind of normally for a sick leave policy. Okay. Um, what about if you have a lot of employees who are currently on shared work, they're working very few hours. Um, what do you think? Would it be better off? to lay those people off with the additional unemployment benefit or keep them on shared work? So, I mean, my understanding is the shared work, um, you can't, I mean, it's only gonna apply if an employee is working, uh, if their hours are reduced by you know, like no more than 50%, I think, like 10 to 50% of their reduction in hours. So when you say they're working very few hours, um, you know, if they're working, uh, only 10% of their, their normal shift, they're not going to qualify for shared work anyway. Um, okay. So I, I, it, it's kind of a, kind of an odd scenario, but I guess if you, I guess it, it kind of is a, is a business decision for you. Are you getting a benefit of having these employees continue to work? But the whole idea is that, you know, the employee who's on a shared work, you know, maybe their hours are reduced by 40%. The employer is going to pay for that 40% and then ESD pays the remaining 60%. Um, and so, I would assume that that would be a better situation for the employee than having them be fully on unemployment and getting something around only 60, you know, some formula, but close to 60%, maybe with this new $600, you know, that might uh, bump them up. But, um, but also there is a benefit to, you know, if you, if you have use for employees and it's not, a, you know, going to be an issue for you as far as making payroll and stuff like that to continue to have those employees working, just the, like not, not on a legal basis, but I would assume that that would be the better option anyway. So, you know, legally speak, that's kind of a, a kind of an odd question, I think, because, you know, there's legal parts of it and kind of, and also business and also personal considerations. But I think uh, until the new federal law with the six, additional $600 comes through, I can't imagine a scenario where shared work would, wouldn't be as good as, or would, I can't imagine a situation where somebody being on unemployment that they're going to get more from that than they would being on a shared work program, uh, maybe afterwards, but, and then also there's going to be, like I said, you know, do you have work that the employees can do? You know, do you want to have them all, 
you know, nobody coming in? Do you mm -hmm. want, you know, all those considerations? Okay. Um, if an employee is unable to work remotely and they cannot perform their position because their office is closed for shelter in place or stay at home order, are they eligible for those 80 hours of sick leave provided? So, um, let's get, my, my question is going to be kind of uh, a little nitpicky or my answer is going to be a little nitpicky. So the fact that there is a shelter in place, that fact alone is not going to qualify them for sick leave. That said, they qualify for, for sick leave or paid FMLA if they can't work or telework because their child's school or place of care is closed. Um, and so the shelter in place, I mean, aside from that, we also have a separate order closing the schools. That is their schools are, their kids' schools closed because of the coronavirus. So if as of April 1, if you have an employee, maybe this is a better way to answer it. As of April 1, if you have an employee whose kid's school is closed or their child care, place of child care is closed, and that employee is saying, I can't work from home because, you know, because this, uh, because I have to take care of, you know, I have seven kids at home, they're monsters, they're running around, I just, there's no way for that to happen, then under those circumstances, they would qualify for sick leave, and they would also qualify for that paid FMLA, and so you, uh, you know, they could very well on April 1 say, I'm applying for the FMLA, my 10-day not unpaid portion is starting right now. I'd like to use my sick leave <laughs> during that time period, get paid for those two weeks with sick leave, and then the remaining 10 weeks, assuming the, the school stays closed as paid FMLA. Like that, that scenario could definitely happen on April 1. Um, but again, being nitpicky because it's not, it's not because there's a stay home, stay healthy order. It's because the schools are closed. Okay. Um, if the employee is unable to work remotely and they're required by a state-issued mandate to quarantine for 14 days after travel prior to starting work, are they eligible for the 80 hours of sick leave? Um, forgive me. At the beginning of the scenario, you said the employee can't work from home? The, yeah, the, un the employee is unable to work remotely and required by a state-issued man mandate to quarantine. Yeah, so I, I, I would understand that as, yeah, I mean, yes, um, because the statute says, you know, you have the sick leave uh, requirement applies when you have a state or local or federal order to quarantine or isolate. It sounds like that's the case. So if that is the case, that's all they need to, and they can't work from home or telework, then they can take sick leave. Uh, you know, there may be some question of, you know, I'm under quarantine, but I'm not feeling, I'm not symptomatic, which is interesting part of the statute, because again, it you can have theoretically have coronavirus and not qualify. You could also not have coronavirus and qualify, but I'm under the quarantine. I'm not symptomatic. I have the job I have now, so I can telework. I wouldn't qualify under those circumstances, but same situation, but I, I'm a construction worker and I can't telework, then yes, I would qualify for the sick leave. Okay, this is an interesting one too, and I've heard this more than once. If an employee voluntarily determines they want to stay at home with their family and there is work available for them, are they eligible for any of the leave options through FSCRA? So it's going to, again, that's going to go back down to, or back to that question of can they telework? And some of the advice I've been giving employers is, um, you know, I've, I've had a lot of employers tell me, you know, this employee said they can't work from home. Um, but, you know, we, you know, because they have kids and they just don't see it as possible and we're telling them, you know, we understand that these are kind of weird times and we understand that, you know, people working from home, there's going to be, you know, 
frankly, you know, decreased uh, expectations of productivity sometimes. And the employer actually said, you know, we're okay with that. We understand. Um, I think you can say that to an employee. And if they, you know, if they're like, okay, I understand. Um, and the new guidance by DOL actually says you can, in that situation, as an employer, you can agree, uh, we are going to allow you to do intermittent uh, sick leave or intermittent leave while you're staying home with your kids. So let's say you're working for a couple hours in the morning, during the day you're watching the kid, then you have, um, and, and during that time you're getting sick leave, and then in the evening you're working again, you can totally do an arrangement like that. Um, but if an employee is saying, there's just no way, I can't work one, uh, I can't work from home, and there's no, you know, the scenario I said, you have seven kids and they're all monsters. Um, I don't know that as an employer, I'm, I'm gonna, I don't know that I'm gonna advise you as an employer to really argue with them. You know, that's a factual question. And I think if you're, uh, making that good faith effort, then I, I would go ahead and I would recommend you go ahead and let them take the sick leave in that situation. Okay. okay. Um, if a business closes a building for cleaning because of potential COVID exposure where the employees work, are the employees eligible to use sick leave under FFCRA or should they apply for unemployment or other state options? So I don't believe that they would be qualified for sick leave under the FFCRA unless that was somehow also accompanied by a quarantine or isolation order. But, you know, you have the specific requirements of, or specific circumstances you can get sick leave under the FFCRA and none of them involve closure of a, of a workplace, frankly. Um, mm -hmm. Now, whether or not they, that means putting everybody on unemployment is... Uh, it depends on kind of what the nature of the clean. I, you know, you're describing you have to clean because of coronavirus. I, I can't imagine that's going to take long enough that it would be worth laying everybody off. You know, I think uh, sending people home, uh, you know, they can use their, you can agree to let them use their sick leave through the state, you know, or, or if you have you know, their PTO or whatever policy that you have, um, or, you know, it may require them to take unpaid days off. Um, but I, I don't know that it necessarily makes sense to lay them off depending on the circumstance. If it means you're out of okay. business, uh, maybe, but. Yeah, but hopefully not. Yeah, hopefully. Um, if an employee, yeah, if an employee voluntarily traveled for family reasons and the client requires them to have a 14 day self quarantine, would that be eligible for FFCRA leave? So, I mean, I would say no. I mean, the, the, Again, the statute, the requirement is it's by order of state, federal, or local government, or by uh, requirement of a healthcare provider. So if it's, uh, you know, the employer requiring it, then no, that's not going to meet those requirements, unless they're symptomatic and seeking diagnosis or something along those lines, but, but no. Okay. Um, really great um, questions from everybody, and thank you, Stephen, for the answers. We are concluding, and I wanted to at least leave you guys with a little bit of good news, the good things that are happening out there, um, because there's so much focus, of course, on the things that are not good. Um, so with a few of those things that I wanted to call out, um, here in the Seattle area, I don't know if any of you folks might be familiar with Fair Start. Um, they are a nonprofit. They describe themselves they, as transforming lives 
They disrupt poverty and nourish communities through food, life skills, and job training. They typically fund all of their work through restaurants and cafes and catering that, of course, has been totally disrupted. But they really early on quickly pivoted, and they're using their staff and their kitchens to provide more than 35,000 meals to shelters, schools, and other folks in isolation in the greater Seattle area. And they would really love to scale up uh, another 15,000 meals per week. So um, if, if any of you are looking for a good cause that's close to home and that speaks to you, um, Fair Start has information available there on their website. Um, someone else down in the South Sound, they're called Golden Services. They're a logistic company and they really rely on government contracts during this time of the year to move military families. And of course, the government has stopped all of those moves for at least 60 days. Um, so really early on in this, they had to start laying people off, but um, they have been able to partner with Northwest Harvest and using their facilities and bringing some of their crew back to package meals and then get them back on their trucks and deliver them to distribution centers in eastern and western Washington, and they're working toward 5,000 a day. So there are lots of uh, our our community members out there looking for ways and finding ways to uh, serve the community and make something good with something bad. And if you guys have any good news stories to share, I would love to throw them in for next week's meetup, uh, where we will be back here again at 2.30, the speaker to be determined. But we'll definitely also look at um, making one of these events sooner rather than later around small business loans. So stay tuned to that. Um, send in your questions. Thanks, everyone, for joining us today. Um, you know, my, my mantra, stay calm, stay kind. We can do this. Have a good day. Mm -hmm.